Hi, I'm Eileen Koval, and you're tuned in to Cured Pet Talk with Shannon Riley Coiner Podcast. Hello. Hi, Eileen. How are you today? Oh, good. I yeah. am so excited to have, um, have you on today. Um, I'm really, really excited to be able to share what you do so that we have another way of doing more positive training for our dogs and, you know, eliminating some of this aversive things. So why don't you tell me a little bit about, and everybody who's listening, what you do and, and maybe even how you came about doing this kind of training. Okay. Yeah. So I'm a certified dog behavior consultant with the IAABC. And I'm also a certified professional dog trainer with CCPDT. I do mostly behavioral cases. I work like aggression, guarding, anxiety. I also train agility dogs. I've always enjoyed like, you know, nose work type stuff. So I do a variety of things, but mostly I do behavior consulting. I got into that after leaving my career in intelligence. I used to work, you know, in Washington, D.C. for a while. And then with the Air Force as a civilian and a contractor. So I always had you know, some background working psychology type stuff, just because that's inherent with intelligence with, you know, collection and things. But then when, you know, when I was married um, to my husband, we moved every couple of years, which was very hard on our dogs and brought about some behavioral issues that I really wasn't sure how to address. So I started working with a certified dog behavior consultant at one of the places where we were stationed. And it really just got me interested in, you know, how dogs you know, perceive different situations, how, you know, we can modify behavior, how we can address some of these emotional issues as well as the behavioral. And so that's how I ended up switching careers. Mm-hmm. As far as the rattlesnake stuff, like we ended up getting stationed in Las Vegas and I was just terrified when we were moving here. And obviously like I'm, you know, I was, I'm willing to shock my dogs, you know, like I just, with the, it's not something that I would do anyway, but then on top of it, our breed, um, Quaker Hunjas tend to be highly sensitive and they're not going to do well with any sort of aversive. So it wasn't something I was willing to do. And so I just used strict management because I didn't think that it's something that could be trained with positive reinforcement. I really didn't believe that. Mm-hmm. And then I actually got into some kind of Facebook argument with somebody who was a certified dog behavior consultant a colleague. And she was talking about using, she'd seen somebody use live rattlesnakes to train them to show avoidance behaviors. And it really got me thinking about it. I'm like, well, maybe I need to question my own biases because we often have put this shock type training up on some pedestal as if it's the gold standard. If you're willing to do it to your dog that, you know, they'll always avoid it. And, you know, the dog will be so, you know, fearful of the snake that they're going to stay away. And I really started to question that because it's just not true. You know, we see things all the time behaviorally with dogs where they're fearful of it, but they, they don't necessarily show avoidance. Sometimes they're highly reactive. They're trying to make sure that never happens to them again. And then of course, there's all the behavioral issues that can result when your dog goes through some traumatic experience. But from my perspective, I I started questioning these biases that I had and started realizing that it's not as effective as people just assume that it's going to be. And so I'm like, well, I don't really want to do that to a snake, like put them in some kind of fight flight response or anything like that. But I started thinking about, you know, I do all this scent work, you know, why don't we start trying to see how we can apply that to the situation? And then I started seeing that you know, there are some people who started dabbling in that area and, you know, had some other uh, of their own programs. They weren't really what I was looking for, but there were people who were trying to do 
positive, you know, snake avoidance. And there were actually people that were doing it from a conservation perspective, you know, like uh, searching cargo holds of airplanes or searching the Everglades for invasive species of snakes. So dogs can be really, you know, good at detecting certain species that you train them for. So I just, like I said, I was not one of those people who was always positive about this or even saw the possibilities, but I had to question my own biases. And then I just started doing this and it's just, you know, run, been a runaway train from there. Yeah. I think I, it's so awesome that you do this. And like you said, you know, that it was the gold standard to use the aversive. And my problem was exactly like you've already touched on the side effects. Like I had dogs who would do that and then come back to me because they were afraid of people or dogs or new environments or men, if the man was the one who shocked them or, and, but they weren't actually learning what everybody thought they were learning. They thought they were learning, oh, don't be afraid of the snake, but they didn't know, maybe that dog was looking at the man, the handler when they got shocked and they weren't even looking at the snake or they weren't even, like the snake was there, but they were recognizing these are all dogs I've never seen before. And so that's what they associated because we can't get in their brains at that moment. So and yep. my other problem with the aversive is, you know, as positive force-free trainers, we know that if you had to ever use punishment, it's very specific. You use it once, it should be effective. It shouldn't be ongoing. And mm -hmm. I had a problem even years ago when I was really first getting into positive training as I was crossing over. Okay, if a punishment should be like a one-time you learned your lesson kind of thing, why do we have to keep repeating it every year? Because that's what a lot of these companies would say, oh, you have to do a refresher. Well, if I got really scared of something <laughs> and it really made me avoid it because maybe I got in a car accident and I was afraid of an intersection and I really just never went in that intersection again, I shouldn't need a refresher in that car accident on that intersection. Right. I'm already afraid. Like I don't need to keep being afraid more. So that was one of my things with aversive. So I never did it with my dogs either because I was like, this just doesn't feel right. So Mm -hmm. I really love that, you know, you think kind of how I think where something doesn't feel right and I mull it over and I try to look from the dog's perspective a little bit and I try to go, well, this doesn't make sense in the learning theory that I understand or whatever it is, and then look for other ways of doing things. So, and like you said, you looked at other people and this isn't, this is a newer training and it's not like this has been around for 20 years, like some like clicker training or some of these other things, this kind of idea is newer, but I'm really hoping it takes off, you know, more. Can you tell us a little bit about how you do it? Yeah. So when I was developing all my protocols, I was trying to look at why dogs even approach snakes to begin with, because it does vary. People would assume that they're fearful, you know, from some evolutionary perspective, because snakes could really seriously harm them, but that's not always the case. And also the, the behavior can vary. Some dogs are just simply curious about the snakes and want to go up to it, you know, sticking their heads under a rock or a bush and, you know, get bitten that way. Other ones, they may not care about snakes off property, but if the owner's around or a fellow dog is around, or if it's on property, they're bred for these guarding behaviors. And so they may be, you know, performing one of those things that we've selected them for over generations. And so that might be addressed a little bit differently than a dog that's simply curious. You know, there's a lot of different reasons why dogs might approach a snake. And so I first try to get them really good at 
detecting a snake like from scent because each different species smells different. We find out here that the Western diamondback and some of its you know closer relatives like the sidewinders and like the pygmy rattlesnakes, they tend to smell kind of similar. The Mojave green, which is out here, smells quite different. And so we go based off of species. I wish they all smelled the same, but they don't. <laughs> I would make life easier. <laughs> yeah. But once you get them, you know, performing the behaviors and the avoidance with one scent, it's easy to add on another one that's a cue for those behaviors. So we get them understanding how to detect these snakes because that's how dogs explore their world is through scent much more than visually. Not to mention these snakes are often hidden, like we don't even know they're there. Or they're, uh, you know, they're under they're, they're camouflage, you can't see them, like a dog might not be able to see them, but they'll smell them. And so we get them really good at detecting it through scent. We also work with visual, visual, and then we teach them some of these avoidance behaviors. But it's a little more than just, you know, click treat, you know, when they leave it or turn away. Because I like them to respond initially to verbal cues while keeping a wide berth. Because all this is cued by low concentration of the scent. I don't want them, you know, going all the way up to the snake, getting some strong whiff of it, and then finally deciding to avoid it because they might get bitten at that point. I want the, you know, very, you know, low concentration scent, odor scent, you know, to show avoidance. So we work on building up, keeping at distance while also showing these avoidance behaviors. But when you're talking about a dog that's been bred to, to guard or to guard the owner or guard the property, they're getting something intrinsically from performing that behavior. So we're talking about dopamine, but they're getting this strong, you know, something that's not, uh, it's not the same as a piece of food. Totally. <laughs> so I don't really talk about it a lot in my videos, but because it's geared towards the average pet owner, but what they're actually doing is tying some of that dopamine response into the behaviors that I'm teaching in those videos. Mm -hmm. So when they perform like these rapid turns, like moving away from the scent, and I teach it in a way that hopefully if they're doing it at home, the way it's in the videos will trigger some of that dopamine response, like in the dog. So it's more than just getting that piece of food because it's really hard when we're talking about guarding behaviors. If it's simple curiosity, that's a little bit, I feel like easier teaching them like, yeah, don't go check that out. But when you're talking about a livestock guardian dog that we have bred them to do this or some other guarding, you know, protection breed, that's, that's hard. <laughs> and especially when the owner's not going to be around. Because for me, I have like a small ranch here. I want my dogs to be able to roam the property without me being there and trusting that they're going to perform these behaviors, even if I'm not watching. And we work up to that because eventually I do actually have them doing the behaviors with me not watching. We also do a little bit of like intelligent disobedience because I don't want to have any reason that there would be like other stimuli in the environment or me like cueing them, you know, to move over to a snake that I don't know is there. Mm -hmm. Like my body language, because my dogs would jump off a cliff with me if I told them to do it. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, if I'm on a hiking trail and I'm telling them to move on ahead or my body's pointing in a direction, I don't want them to go there if there's danger. They know if a snake's there before I'm going to know that one's there. So we also work on stimulus control because out here people get snakes on their porches. Yeah. <laughs> the dog just be like, well, I really need to go inside. So I'm just going to try to walk past this snake. Like there's all kinds of reasons that they might approach it. So we work on stimulus control as well, but it sounds like it's really involved, but it actually goes faster than you'd think. With my own dogs, they were doing pretty well after about a week and a half, after three weeks of the training, just, you know, 10 minutes a day or so, they were really good. Six weeks in, 
Excellent. And with most of the dogs I work with, it's between three and six weeks of doing this a little bit daily. And then they're really good at detecting them and, you know, consistently showing the avoidance behaviors, no matter what's going on. One thing I want to stop and just make people like really think about for a second too, is what you just said. This isn't going to be a one-time thing. Like this isn't, they're going to learn it. They're not going to learn it in one hour. Like these aversive places are, which they don't actually learn it. We know yeah. <laughs> and there's really not, even as humans, like if we're taking a class, whether we're learning a new language or learning math, or, you know, we're taking even a pottery class or an art class, you're not going to learn it. Like you said, in like with stimulus control, you're not going to learn it, master it in one, one class. It's just that is just not possible. The only thing that you can learn in like that kind of second is something traumatic, really. I mean, that's the, there's not a lot of things that you can learn in a one-time practice to be very fluent at it. But like you're saying, it's just something you practice, but you're also not saying, oh, this is going to take you two years to get mm-hmm. mastered. This isn't like learning weepholes in agility where, and if, you know, it might take a little longer, but it's but it's something <laughs> because it's unnatural and they're using something with scent. And I love that you talk about that dopamine response too, because when I'm working with reactive dogs, when I'm teaching them to look at me away from whatever they're fearful of, dogs, people, whatever, I want it to be that like, I looked at you and that's ex- at more exciting than whatever I want to chase, you know, things too. And I love how you talk about different breeds because you have some dogs that are just going to be like, not even interested in the snake at all. And then you're going to have, like, I have Jack Russell. So, you know, Jack Russell's like, Ooh, chase, you know, I want to be into something. (laughs) They were bred to hunt. They were bred to chase things. If you run, you want to be chased. If you're around a Jack Russell and you run, it's because you're asking to be chased. Like that's how they're wired. So I love that you look at the different breeds and like, okay, not every breed is going to be exactly the same. And what I also just want to kind of highlight where some of our listeners may not understand the intellectual disobedience, like, what does that really mean? And that's where your dog knows you're trying to tell them, like you said, go this way. And they're like, but no, mom, there is a snake there. So I'm going to stop. And that is something that I work with, with my clients a lot about paying attention and listening, quote unquote, listening to your dogs and paying attention to their body language. And so like I work with my dogs now they're retired from this, but they've had to work with reactive dogs sometimes. So like if I was approaching a dog and my dog stopped and it was like, they would just stop. And I would, we could be 10 feet away from the dog and the dog's not even barking, growling or lunging at them. And I would tell my client, okay, you have to stop now. And they're like, why? And I said, because my dog is indicating that your dog is getting anxious and doesn't want us to approach anymore. And if they forced it, whether the client wasn't listening or I was trying to like prove my point, we would take one more step and that dog would, flip because the distance was too much. And so listening to your dog when you're training these things is so important. And it's almost like you said, you worked in intellectual, you know, in the government and stuff. And so when you look at dogs who are bomb dogs for the military, I have some friends and clients who have done work with military dogs. They see a bomb somewhere like the soldiers may not know, but the soldiers trust those dogs. If they stop And they are like the whole group of soldiers will stop. They will not go. And they know there is a bomb somewhere. And when they doubt that dog is when they run into trouble. So I just love like everything you're talking about, not just of, okay, this is how we treat it. We clicked and we treated and now they don't, they don't mind snakes anymore. It's so much more is going on in their brain. We just, as dog trainers have to simplify it (laughs) because 
not everybody thinks this is fascinating. Um, but at the same time, I think it's important that people realize you're not just giving them a treat for looking at you when they see a dog. They're actually more thoughts and emotions and chemical releases are all happening at the same time. So I think that that is just super great. Tell us a little bit about how you run your online course in this. Do you give sense to people? Like, how do you do it? Because I know a lot of your courses are all online based. Yeah, it's um, largely online based and it has different modules, you know, building like foundations and then doing some actual training in the field and proofing all of these behaviors so that your dog will perform them even when you're not there and in different contexts because dogs are so contextual. But I do not give sense because, you know, it depends on what part of the country you're in, but it does talk in the course about where to find them. Oh, that's awesome. Okay. On doing that because that's always the problem. It's like, well, where do I even find this? So it talks about that where you can find those because uh, it, it has to be species specific. Mm-hmm. And you know, the snake sense we have here in Las Vegas is different than the species that are in Southern California, or I've had clients that are in Africa or, you know, in Europe or Australia. And wow, they have some really scary snakes in some of these places. <laughs> Australia. I traveled to Australia in the nineties. And I remember people going, you're going to the continent that has the most dangerous snakes ever. And of course, I horseback road, I'm an outdoorsy person. So we went on horseback trails and hiking and People were like, you're insane. Like you're going out into, but I also camped in Africa. So that's kind of horseback ride in Africa. That's fun to me, but you know, I'm a little crazy, but I mean, we saw some scary snakes in Africa too. And that is so important. I think that's something that I don't think people realize when they do this aversion part training. A lot of times it's just like in our area, it's just one, it's a rattlesnake and it's one rattlesnake in a cage or a fake rattlesnake. I mean, there's different techniques. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's why dogs can detect, you know, different drug to us. They may smell all the same. We don't even smell snakes. You know, unless you have a snake in an aquarium all the time, you don't smell it. And that's just because of the feces and and all of that, you know, it's not. (laughs) And so I just think that that's so great that you really look at the scent. And like you said, that's the first thing they notice. They're not, they may not even see it. When you do in person, how do you add the visual? Um, I do add the visual and I have people do that in the online course too. Just buying some little fake snake. It, it doesn't have to look that realistic because, you know, snakes look different, you know, depending on their size, uh, their species, all that. They may be laying, you know, flat. They may be coiled. Some snakes are like short and fat. Some are long and skinny. Like they all look kind of different. But I actually start with that first because some dogs, you put that fake snake on the ground and they just cannot control themselves. They have to get over to that thing and sniff it or pick it up. And so being like force-free trainer, I start with that because I want to work on the simplest thing first. Mm-hmm. And they're often more interested in smell than they are in just something visually. So I work on, you know, training those foundations and, you know, keeping them, you know, performing those behaviors with just a visual. And then once they're good with that, then we'll add in the scent. And for me, I like to do all of it off leash. There are some dogs that we do start with on leash because they absolutely cannot control themselves. <laughs> <laughs> dogs also start from different backgrounds. Some of them have had extensive training, you know, with um, stimulus control and obedience. Other ones, like not so much. And that's okay because we also do things, you know, training visual boundaries and targets and all this stuff to try to help prompt the dog and teach them where we want them to be. And that's not right up on top of the snake. (laughs) Right. Exactly. 
Yeah, so I try to help them out, giving them all the information they need in a positive way that helps teach them what we want, builds their confidence and keeps them doing the right thing. But yeah, I, I get these, um, you know, simple little rubber snakes or resin snakes off of like Amazon. And you can get a variety of different ones so that your dog sees a variety. But I feel like it's very important too, like if you can, getting a variety of the different scents. Because, you know, think of humans as a species. Dogs know the difference between one person by scent versus another one by scent. And dog, like snakes of a species, they also smell a little individual too. So it's always helpful to get them generalizing that I ignore all Western diamondbacks, mm-hmm. you know, just one or two. So it's always helpful to do that. So in my group classes, I have a variety of different, you know, different uh, scents that I use, uh, both within a species and then using the different species that we have in this area. That is just fascinating. Is it hard to get the different scents for a snake? You know, I, I've done just dabbled in scent work because I do more of the agility and the behavior stuff. And so even as much as I love it, I just run out of time to do all the things I want to do with my dogs. Is it hard to get scents, all the different scents for the snakes? It kind of depends on where you live. I have people check out the different, you know, wildlife refuges and, you know, rattlesnake removal companies, herpetology societies, um, even just people on online, like, you know, they might pick up uh, shedded snake skins on their hikes. You can find stuff around places. I talk more about that in the course because it really depends, you know, on your area where you're at. In Las Vegas, I don't feel like it's as hard as it might be in Africa or somewhere else. I've had some clients say they've had difficulty, but then in other places, it's been easy for them. Yeah, like it's not terribly hard, but I do feel like it's gotten more difficult in the last year or so. As this training has taken off and more people are getting the sense, <laughs> before I used to see them everywhere. Now, like you have to like keep your eye on it for a day or two and then they pop up and it's easier to get them. But yeah, you have to go to the right sources because people do keep these snakes for education purposes. Mm-hmm. That is and, true. You know, then when they shed their skins, you can, they're often happy to give it to you to use for education. Yeah. And I, what I also love that I just want to like point out too is as positive forestry people, It's also thinking about how the animal we're working with is affected. Like you mentioned it a little bit at the beginning. When we go, they do the snake aversion training. It's not like the snake didn't do anything wrong. (laughs) The snake just was born and got caught and is now a quote unquote pet to this person who's doing the aversive training. And now it's letting dogs, you know, bark and, and, and that's gotta be stressful for that snake. And even though I know there's a lot of people who are like, I don't care. Every snake on the planet could be annihilated because they have their own fears of snakes. Snakes have a place, you know, snakes won't hurt you if you don't hurt them. I hike at a place where it's common for us to see a rattlesnake, you know, cross the path and you just let it go, like let it go and do its thing and avoid it. And everybody's fine. And then they're doing their thing. It's one of the reasons when I first got Jack Russell's, everybody wanted me to do goaded ground with my Jack Russell. And the way they were training it was, oh, well, you just get a rat, put it in the cage and just let your, your Jack Russell harass it. And then as a reward, they told me, let him kill the rat. And I was like, this is like way too much. I don't one, want my Jack Russell learning how to kill anything on purpose. I mean, it's a Jack Russell. So some things may die because of their you know, prey drive, but like, I don't want to put that rat in that situation. So this is like, when you think even bigger, because sometimes, you know, we just think about what's the goal. Oh, we want to train our dogs not to do, you know, not to get into snakes so we can protect them, whatever. But we also have to think about the animals that we're using 
to train this. Even when I'm doing my reactive dog stuff, you know, I'm only going to practice with a really solid dog. I'm not going to practice with another fearful dog because now both of them are traumatized, you know? So I love your whole, the way you've designed this, like talking to you of it's, it's global thinking. It's not, they're very, you know, like micro thinking. I really think that that's a great thing that people should recognize too, that I don't think people think about. When they sign up for that aversive training class, I think they're just like, I just want my dog fixed in one day afternoon or in one hour. And they don't care about all the other things that are happening. So when did you, like, how long has this been? Have you been doing this? I've been doing this almost two years now. Yeah, that was the big thing too. You were mentioning about, you know, not bothering the snake. And I do feel like we can all coexist. And Mm -hmm. that's something that's bothered me with some of the other classes out there. Some of them claiming to be positive, but then they have a snake with their mouth duct taped shut. Mm -hmm. And to me, like that's putting this snake through all this stress. And then, you know, it's getting, you know, a sympathetic nervous system response, like fight flight, whenever these dogs are coming around and I wouldn't do that to a helper human or a helper dog, you know? So I'm like, there's ways we can do this. I, I think that sometimes we're just so narrow thinking. We're not thinking about, like, especially snakes, because we don't understand them. We're not around them. We understand dogs. We understand people more because that's who we socialize with. And I think it's easy to overlook that. But yeah, I, I, I don't know. I'm not a snake person, but I don't want to bother them either. I feel like we can all be happy. <laughs> I totally agree. Like I have... My children, you know, I'm like, I have a bird, we have a horse, we have dogs, we have cats, and we've had guinea pigs, hamsters, I, you know, I have rats, I have everything. The one animal that I never really want is a snake. Like, I'm just not a snake person. And I'm a vet tech, so I've had to work with them. I've had to, you know, draw blood from them. I mean, I've had to handle them. And I'm not afraid of them, but they're just not. One thing I've also feel, because it goes, and this goes into a whole nother tangent, but a lot of times snakes aren't cared for well. They're in small little captivities and they're meant to be able to go wild. And as a vet tech, that was one of my things is I, I would see so many sick snakes come in because of the way they were cared for at home because they weren't, the heat wasn't right. The environment wasn't right. They didn't have a place to exercise. They didn't have stretching. They didn't have trees. And years ago, I kind of thought about doing what you're doing. I thought, you know, I, cause I was so frustrated with the aversion training that I'm like, I'm just going to do this. And one of the things that held me back at first because I hadn't really spent a lot of time thinking about it was I don't really want to have a snake as a pet. (laughs) And so I'm like, well, that, you know, runs into me. But then I started thinking about what you have already developed. Do we really need, I mean, I use fake dogs for my reactive dogs when I'm first working with them. You know, they look real dogs react to them. So I started thinking, well, I could use a fake snake. And then, you know, then we could get the odor. So I would kind of thought about this, but with just my life, I couldn't do that. That's why I was so happy when I came across the fact that you're already doing it. So there was no need to recreate the wheel. There was never, cause we could just have, you know, you, since you've already got it set up and have the videos. And um, so we think what you're doing is so great and it just needs to get out there more. And so anybody who's listening to this can, you know, share this podcast with anyone who's thinking about using those aversives because maybe you have to wait six weeks to even get in that class. Well, instead of getting into that class, just sign up for the online class. And in six weeks, you'll have the results you want without hurting your dog, hurting a snake, you know, doing all of and potentially causing a side effect. Before we wrap up, I, because I've seen it, but I want to get your opinion because everybody always has to hear my opinion on this website is 
Some of the side effects that you have seen from aversive training of the snake, you know, of avoidance training, the traditional way of using the shock collar. What are some things that you have also seen? Oh gosh. I, once I moved to Las Vegas, there's so many dogs that go through this training here that I saw a lot of different side effects. Number one, I saw dogs who were ready to attack every single snake that they would come across because they wanted to make sure that never happened to them again. So some of these dogs, you know, they went through the shock training and then the next time they see a rattlesnake, they go and attack it and try to kill it. So then the owner, you know, the dog gets bitten, you know, goes through all the anti-venom treatments and whatnot get shocked again because the, you know, pet parents thought, well, obviously this didn't work the first time and then go after snakes again. Mm -hmm. So everybody has a different response, you know, to that fear and trauma, which I think people forget about fear and trauma don't equal avoidance. Mm -hmm. I've seen dogs that were terrified of the handler um, or the owner don't want to go near them. I've seen ones who didn't want to have their harness or their leash put on because they are afraid they're going back to that place. I've seen ones that seemed like they're afraid to breathe because the shocks probably timed where they weren't really sure what to avoid. Because that's the point of a punishment is that it should be paired in a way that the dog knows what to avoid. And if you're gonna use punishment anyway, you know, that's how it should be. But sometimes, you know, the, the dog hasn't made some clear connection. So they're like, I'm afraid to even breathe because I don't even know when this is gonna to happen to me again. I've seen ones that just don't wanna to go to new places in public, fearful of just, strangers, other people, behaviors that, you know, this dog didn't show nervousness and anxiety beforehand, but now this dog is just radically changed after these events. And obviously that's not every dog that goes through this type of training, but we see it a lot. I yeah. totally agree. I, I mean, some of my most sweet dogs never have any, like I had, I'd seen them as puppies. They never had any fear problems. Like they were balanced with dogs, balanced with people, like nothing. And then they'll come back to me and out of the owner at first says out of the blue this is happening and then I start questioning because that's how my private trainings go is there's lots of interviewing questions and then I go well we did go to snake avoidance training and I'm like oh my gosh okay so now I know where we can start because I just like you know punishment if it's used it has to be so specific it's humans are the same way I mean if if we get in trouble for something and we don't know what we got in trouble for, we can't avoid that behavior if it's too generalized. And that happens with dogs because we have no idea. I mean, your, their dog could be daydreaming about, you know, their friend while, and they got shocked. They might not even be thinking about, you know, what they're doing. And now all of a sudden they're like, I just got hurt and I was just daydreaming, you know? So we just don't want to hurt them for no reason. Absolutely. Yeah. There, and the thing is, it's just not that reliable anyway. There's so many better ways to do this. A better well-behaved dog afterwards, more connection between you and your dog. Lots of good things that can come from this sort of positive training doing this. The bond, the bond that changes between when you're always, I always tell my clients, if you're always looking for what they're doing wrong, you know, pretty soon your dog's going to start avoiding you because they're going to go, oh gosh, every time I interact with that person, I'm I'm doing something wrong. And, and that's just a human trait. Like humans like to look for things wrong. We like to, you know, notice that's why the news is so popular and things. Cause we like to, you know, look for things are wrong, but if we can train our brains to start looking for what is right, the positive in a, you know, unwanted situation and really start looking for, you did that right. Even if it's little tiny bitty things, it builds that bond and that confidence too, I see. So I could talk to you for hours about this because I just think it's amazing that you're doing this. Thank you so much for taking this time to really share this. And 
I really hope it helps promote this even, um, you know, more. Anything else that you would like to share with audience that they might, you know, want to know? I just think that, you know, it's always important to question our own biases about things like why are we doing things the way that we're doing them? And if your dog is ever doing a behavior you don't know how to address, just start thinking about why is my dog doing this? There's always some sort of reason it doesn't always seem to make sense to us. That can be, you know, a lot of genetics or learning that we didn't realize at play. It's just trying to understand your dog so that we can come up with better solutions. I think that's great advice across the board for every kind of training. So, well, thank you, Eileen, for, Eileen, for being here. I'm super appreciative. And I, I hope maybe we'll have even more podcasts because I just think this is amazing and hopefully more people will go to you. So if you've enjoyed this podcast, please share it and, you know, like it. And um, because we just want our dogs to be happier in this world. So thank you again so much for being here. I'm, I really appreciate you taking this time. Thank you, Shannon. It's been such a pleasure.